0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please remain standing and open in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Now, as with last week, once again, I'm actually going to shorten the text. Um, We're not going to look at all of chapter 27. We're only going going to look at the first 10 verses. So Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. And please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, "'Keep all the commandments which I command you today, "'and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan "'to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, "'that you shall set up for yourselves large stones "'and whitewash them with lime. "'You shall write on them all the words of this law "'when you have crossed over, "'that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, "'a land flowing with milk and honey, "'just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you.' "...therefore it shall be, when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God, and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God." You shall offer peace offerings, and shall eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God, and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. O Father, how we do pray that you would open up our eyes, that we would see beautiful things in your word here, even as we think of the establishment of your covenant and the relationship that we bear to you. Help us to see, O Lord, that even though We do not have the same covenant ceremony in our own day, that yet everything in this covenant ceremony is instructive for us. For we, Lord, fundamentally relate to you by covenant in the same way. And therefore, Lord, help us to see the importance of this particular passage, and particularly, Lord, the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice which fully establishes the new and everlasting covenant which we enjoy with you from now even to all eternity. For Lord, we do ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, last week we looked at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 26 and we saw that fundamentally all of Deuteronomy is covenantal, that it's not first and foremost a book of laws. It is a book that contains laws, but the reason why there are laws in the book is because God is establishing his covenant with his people and the laws happen to be an important part of that covenant but fundamentally fundamentally the book of Deuteronomy is a book that describes how God and his people relate one to another and so there are two sides to this covenant as as we saw last week there is God and his pledging to bless his people which he does in the context of the covenant and there are the, there's the people's pledge to God that they will in fact Obey him. Now, in this particular passage, Moses moves on from describing the covenantal nature of the relationship between God and his people to describing the actual ceremony whereby God's people are formally set aside as such, where they are formally set aside as the people of God, where they take God to be their God, and where they themselves become God's people. And the reason this is important is because not only is it the case as we've seen in a number of different uh, ways throughout Deuteronomy that the covenant by which we relate to God is fundamentally the same as the covenant which uh, which God instituted through Moses in the days uh, of the Exodus but also but also everything in the covenant ceremony that we see here is prophetic it teaches us something about the covenant that we have with God today—it teaches you something about what God did to enter into covenant with you. It's not just that we are to uh, have this 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 uh, ceremony uh, in the days of Moses, and we are just then to say that it's in some ways God will enter into a new covenant, but that that new covenant itself will be just like in a lot of ways and be the fulfillment of the things which are done here. And so it's important for us to ask, what is it? that we see that Moses singles out as being important in this covenant ceremony. There's actually not very much that he does. There's only two things really. What are the two main things in this covenant ceremony that we see emphasized? It is this, first, the word of God. Covenant entails obedience to the word of God. That is highlighted very, very clearly in this covenant ceremony. And secondly, covenant is founded on sacrifice. Covenant is founded on sacrifice. Covenant entails obedience to God and to his word in particular, the emphasis on the word of God. And secondly, the covenant is founded on sacrifice. The word of God and sacrifice are the two things that are highlighted in this covenant ceremony. And so we'll look at this passage under those two headings. We'll consider these these two main things that Moses highlights uh, here. That is, again, uh, the the word of God. We see this particularly with with the stones, which are whitewashed so as to be able to write on them. And that then all the words are written on these stones. So the word of God is highlighted in the ceremony. And then secondly, the ceremony is, is fulfilled, it's completed, it's consummated by the offering of sacrifices. So we'll look at uh, the sacrifices that are offering, showing, uh, again, these two things, that God establishes his covenant with his people uh, by sacrifice, and he establishes it such that there is an obligation for the people of God to obey the word of God. Now, as we look then at these two things, there's a few questions that we need to ask, preliminary questions about the passage, and that is, why is there even a necessity at all for a covenant ceremony like this in the land? Um, Or to put it another way, just to bring out what the tension is, um, is it not the case that there was already a covenant ceremony in Exodus chapter 24? Were not the people of God already constituted as the people of God as such? Did that not already happen when the people of God came to Mount Sinai and Moses sprinkles the blood of the bull on the people and says, this is the blood of the covenant. You are now uh, therefore the people of God. What is the reason for this covenant ceremony? And what is the relationship between this covenant ceremony and the one that happened at Mount Sinai? Now, in order to understand the reason why this is so important, the reason why there is a need for another covenant ceremony, we have to think about the context of what happened immediately after the people of God went into uh, that first covenant in Exodus 24. The, it's important to note that the very next thing that happens, in terms of the narrative story, is they, the people immediately broke that covenant. They immediately broke the covenant. Now, it's eight chapters later in the book of Exodus, but if you remember, chapters 25 through 31 are simply instructions of the tabernacle. They would have been given very quickly. Within 40 days, or even less than 40 days, Moses was up there for 40 days, within 40 days, the people of God broke that covenant. They broke that covenant. So now there's a, a need to enter into another covenant with God. And we see even further that the people of God, even after God said he would forgive them of their sins, he still brought them to the promised land. And then again, they disobey, and they're unwilling to go into the promised land. And therefore, God says, all of you will die in the wilderness, And that dying in the wilderness, the people of God understood, was something of a casting off. That was something of uh, a breaking of the covenant. And this is why, for instance, in the book of Joshua, when the people of God cross over the land, they need to be circumcised. The, The implication is that during the wilderness years, nobody was circumcised. That old generation that was circumcised died. And because the people of God were in the wilderness, and in some ways outside of the covenant of God, in some ways, as we'll see, in some ways outside of the covenant of God, they did not actually circumcise uh, the, all the males until they crossed over into the land because it was understood at this point that the, that fundamentally the the time when the people of God were entering into covenant with God was going to be when they crossed over the Jordan and took possession uh, of the land. Now, the, the question to asked at this point would be, uh, is it not the case though that the people of God were still the people of God in the wilderness? Was it not the case that Um, you know, they were still his people? Were they no different from the Philistines, say, or or the Amorites or any of the Canaanites that that they were going to go over to dispossess? And the answer is yes, the people of God were still, in some sense, uh, the people of God, and yet they were, in some sense, under the wrath of God uh, at the same time. God had promised to bring them into the land. He said that he would be faithful to this promise, and he would, in fact, be faithful uh, to this promise. And in this way, then, there is a sense in which God has pledged to a particular people to bring them into the land, and yet that 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 particular people that's dwelling in the land that will cross over the Jordan, they have not fully entered into the covenant relationship with God. So if we were to, to think about what the kind of situation this is like, this is something like an engagement, like an engagement in marriage, where there is a person chosen, there is a commitment to the person, and yet the formal covenant that establishes the relationship has not yet happened. And this is, this is actually the way that the scriptures describe this period in the wilderness in a number of different ways. And you remember that, of course, marriage is like a covenant. We've seen that a number of ways, uh, both in Deuteronomy and in the Song of Songs in the morning. But Hosea chapter 2, uh, God actually speaks uh, in, through Hosea in Hosea chapter 2 of God wooing his people while they're in the wilderness. And even as he's prophesying about another time of them being in exile like the wilderness years, he says that, it, that he will betroth them to himself, meaning that even as he casts them off, he won't fully cast them off. He will cast them off so as to woo them in the wilderness and to uh, be engaged to them, betrothed to them, so that he can fully bring them into the covenant through the coming uh, of the Messiah. Now, something similar is happening here. God, uh, God has declared this people to be his people And yet these particular people who are on the edge of the Jordan have not yet themselves entered into covenant with God. And so because of that then, there is a necessity for this particular covenant ceremony. And yet we wouldn't be surprised to see that there's going to be a lot of similarities with the covenant ceremony in Exodus 24. It's fundamentally the same. The result is the same. God becomes the God of his people and the people become God's people in a formal way. Now, one of the only new elements with regard to this covenant ceremony is the setting. The setting becomes highly important. It is only when the people of God cross over the Jordan that they're going to be able to go into this covenant ceremony. It's only when they take possession of this land. And the reason this is significant is because the land itself is not significant on its own. It is significant insofar as it is the place where the people of God experience communion with God, In the covenant context. And in order to show the importance of the land as such, that it will in fact be the place where God dwells with his people, the covenant ceremony is only to be done when the people of God take possession of that land. So they take possession of the the land, which is to be a picture of salvation, just as we take possession of the covenant promises through the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they enter into the covenant with God. Now, those are all the preliminary things to discuss. The people of God then must uh, must wait until they cross over the land and then they will enter into covenant uh, with God. Now, again, there are two things that are mentioned, two things that are highlighted in this covenant ceremony, the two parts to it. The first is the emphasis on the Word of God. Notice in the text, in verses 2 and verse 4, verses 2 and 4, that there are to be great stones that are to be taken, and they are to be set up in the, for the ceremony. They're to be whitewashed, so to be uh, with lime, so they're going to be white. They can be written on, and then all the words of this law are to be written on them. And this is to be then a part of the ceremony. Now, this actually was an ancient practice. The, the writing uh, of words with regard to a covenant or some other important document on large stones or, or, or a stella, as they're called. Uh, this was an ancient practice. And, uh, and if we were to ask, what is it that was written on the stones? like Would, there, would it have been possible for all the book of Deuteronomy to, to be written on these stones? The answer is, in fact, yes. Um, there, there were stones, there are stones that we have found of ancient civilizations uh, where there have been documents about as long as Deuteronomy and the number of stones that it would take uh, to write the entire book is actually not that that great. So the idea here is that when Moses says all the words are to be written on these stones, that it actually is all the words. So when the, when the people of God come and they have this ceremony, there is going to be all around them these stones that have all of the words of Deuteronomy. The, the summation of the final words of the greatest prophet that Israel has ever seen that details for them all of the doctrine about how they are to relate to God recounting all the history of salvation to this point, all of the obligations of the people of God that they have to him, and even prophecies about how they're going to be saved finally from their sins when the Messiah comes. All of these things would have been all around them as they enter into the covenant with God. Now, the significance of this then, what would be the significance of having uh, this this all of these words of Deuteronomy all around you? The significance is to highlight the absolute importance of the word of God to being in covenant with him. That when you take God as your God, you are committing yourself to obeying and treasuring the word of God as it's been given. And this would have been brought home very pointedly to the people of God as they enter into covenant with all of the words of Deuteronomy put uh, on these stones all around them. This is again a common thing in the ancient world. One of the things that we see in ancient covenants is that the the covenant document itself. There had been some uh, mechanism of preserving this covenant, some way to preserve the document, some uh, some uh, kind of circumstance that would have been set up where that where the both parties of the covenant could review the document, they could read it. And here we have the entire book of Deuteronomy functioning in this way for the people of God. This was to be the way in which the relationship between God and his people are defined. And so it's important, again, that we we note again what it is that we find in the book of Deuteronomy. I've mentioned some of these things, but just to remind you, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is not just a series of laws. It's not the purpose of Deuteronomy, as we've said a number of times. It's not just to give you, you should do this, you shouldn't do this. It does have that, and that is an important part. But remember... And we know we've been going through Deuteronomy for some time, but remember, if we go back to the beginning, uh, Deuteronomy begins with four chapters that recount the history of salvation to this point, and Moses then basically preaches in chapter four and shows the significance of all these things for the relationship of the people of God uh, to to Him. He extols the greatness of the salvation that they've that, that God has accomplished in the Exodus highlighting over and over again God's grace and the sinfulness of the people. If you remember then the great expounding of the first commandment, which takes six chapters... Moses highlights over and over again the grace of God. The reason why you're to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength is because God was merciful and gracious to you. He brought you out of slavery when you kept sinning against him. Even after you were brought out, you did nothing but sin. Yet God was gracious to you over and over again. He highlights the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of salvation. That is the foundation for every obligation that you have to God. Uh, again, he prophesied. Uh, the days of the coming of the Messiah. We see this in chapter 4, verses 25 to 31. You'll go off into exile. God himself will bring you back. You'll find God when you seek him with all your heart. We're going to have more prophecies that are going to come in the future with Deuteronomy, particularly in in chapter 30. We have... Uh, the prophecy, the prophecy of the setting of uh, of a name of a, a place where God will choose to set His name in chapter twelve, pointing to uh, God being with His people forever. We had the prophecy in De- De- Deuteronomy chapter eighteen of the prophet who would be like Moses, who would lead the people of God and be a savior to them, just as Moses was to the people. All these things we find in the book of Deuteronomy. So as you think of again Deuteronomy surrounding the people in this covenant ceremony. You're to ask, what is this? What, is, what are the people of God to learn from all these things? What is the main message of Deuteronomy? What is the, the main thing that's taught? What does Deuteronomy primarily teach? The answer would be, Deuteronomy primarily teaches man what he is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. The same things that we see in Westminster Shorter Catechism 3. The same things that are found in all the Bible. Deuteronomy primarily teaches the people of God what they're to believe concerning God, all the things that he's done for them, all the ways in which he's shown his grace, the great doctrines of salvation, even the the nature of God is very thoroughly explained in chapter 4, and all the duties that God requires of man, uh, given through the Ten Commandments and a great and long exposition uh, of them. Fundamentally, the message of Deuteronomy is the same as the message of the entire Bible. And therefore, brothers and sisters, as you think about the entire book of Deuteronomy being being present for this covenant ceremony. The implication for you is that if you are going to relate to God via covenant, which is the only way to relate to him, if you're going to relate to God via covenant, you must have an unwavering commitment to the word of God. You must have an unwavering commitment to the word of God. The people of God in Moses' day pledged themselves to the word. And it is your obligation to do the same. The Word of God is absolutely crucial for covenant. And this means the Word of God must be crucial to you. You cannot keep covenant well with God if you yourself do not know the Word of God. You can't do it. Because the Word of God is what defines how you are to be in covenant relationship with God. And therefore, the Word of God must be the highest priority of your life in terms of a thing that you study. There is to be nothing that's more important for your study than understanding the Word of God. And this means that you must study the Word. It means individually, you must read the Word. You set aside certain times where it becomes the, the, a pillar of your day that is uh, basically with no exceptions. It always happens. So the, the idea being, you know, you have to eat. You have to eat to live, and there are certain times we mark aside for the eating of food, and the Word of God should be like that. There should be time set aside for you to read the Bible, whether it's getting up early, staying up late, marking it uh, with regard to a particular meal. There needs to be times where you read the Word, and that you read it thoughtfully, that you try to learn the Bible as best you can, that you don't read it just as as a duty to check a box to say that you've done it, but you read it because you love God and you want to know what he has taught you in his word about how to relate to him, how you are to know him more, how you can know him more, and how you can obey the things which he has written in this. It means as well that in the context of family, that you are also, to be sure, especially you heads of households, that you, are sh- that you make sure that in the family that there is the study of the scriptures as a family, that you, that you make it, that you make it a, a clear thing that there will be, a, as a regular part of the, the, the traditions of the family, the regular habits of the family, that a, there is a regular reading of the Bible, there is a regular explaining of the Bible to the children so that they can understand it. And then, of course, also there needs to be a commitment to the preaching of the Word, a commitment to being at worship, a commitment to sitting under good preaching, uh, even to come to the evening service when you can, to review the preaching of the word throughout the week and to apply it to your lives, to think carefully about preaching, uh, to listen diligently, and to to uh, weigh what is said, and then to take everything and to apply it to your life. These are the things that you must do to be in a covenant relationship with God. This is what you... Uh, commit yourself to being as a part of the people of God. You must be people of the Word of God. The ceremony that constitutes the people of God as such highlights the absolute necessity of the Word of God for those who are to be in covenant relationship with Him. And so this is the first thing. The first thing that is said. There is to be uh, these great stones and the entire book of Deuteronomy is to be written on them. Now, the second thing is that there are to be altars that are set up and there are to be sacrifices that are offered. So there's this this link between sacrifice and covenant. We see this again with Exodus 24. There were uh, altars that were set up. There were sacrifices that were made. Moses takes the blood and sprinkles on the people. And this is the blood of the covenant, which then designates the people uh, as the people of God. We see even the significance of this for us in that the institution of the Lord's Supper uh, parallels this where Christ then says, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. So just as Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant, sprinkles it on the people. The sacrifice constitutes the covenant. It it, it inaugurates it, so to speak. So too, Christ, with his blood, constitutes uh, the new covenant. And this is why then, with the Lord's Supper, every week as we take it, we are are remembering the, the one sacrifice that established the new covenant with the people of God, the covenant that would be the only way to relate to God into all eternity, that would guarantee us the blessings of God into all eternity, fellowship with him in the new heavens and the new earth. This was established by the shedding of blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we even see this relationship between covenants and sacrifice all over the scriptures. Every covenant has to have some kind of sacrifice, some kind of inauguration by blood. Every covenant whereby there is a relationship between God and his people is established by the shedding of blood. And of course, then, this must be true here as well. Now, you'll notice in the text there are two sacrifices that are mentioned that particularly are to be used in the establishment of this covenant, the burnt offering and the peace offerings. It's important for us to consider, then, uh, the significance of these two offerings, why they're here, how they function in the context uh, of this ceremony. These offerings are, are not the same. They have, uh, they have different significations, different um, concepts and theology, different truths that are being spoken. And it's important to note, as you think about all the different sacrifices which are given, for instance, in Leviticus, there's a number of them that are there, that all of the sacrifices are done and all of them point to different elements of the atonement. And yet, when Christ died on the cross, that one time, He fulfilled all of them. So, every truth of every sacrifice is ultimately fulfilled in the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what was then the truth that's being taught with regard to the burnt offering? What's the significance of the burnt offering? The significance is predominantly that of propitiation. Propitiation. In the burnt offering, the entire animal is consumed, all of it is consumed in the flame, and then it goes up to God as a pleasing aroma. God smells the sacrifice, and then his wrath is turned aside. So remember what propitiation is, and it's one of, a, one of those Christian words that often uh, gets used as it relates to the death of Christ, and yet it's not, it's not always defined uh, very well. But the basic idea of propitiation is satisfaction of wrath. It's satisfaction of wrath. God was angry, he smells the aroma of the burnt offering, and he's no longer angry. That's the, the picture that we see with the burnt offering. Uh, the abstract concept of of propitiation is illustrated very graphically as the entire animal goes up in flames and God says it's a pleasing aroma and he'll turn away uh, his wrath. Now, if this is the case, if if it is the case that you, in this sense, cannot enter into covenant with God without a burnt offering, without some kind of satisfaction of the wrath of God, then this means that God is, in fact, angry with you until... You have the wrath of God appeased on your behalf by the sacrifice. It's one of the things that shows the universal nature of sin in that, in the Bible, there are zero people, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, who don't need a sacrifice, and yet who God will say, I'm pleased with you. Every single other person needs the sacrifice. And that becomes crystal clear. In the Old Testament, everyone needs to sacrifice. Everyone everyone needs to enter into covenant this way. Uh, even Moses. Everyone would have related to God in this way. And all those who are outside of Israel, not one of them is saved because all of them are under the wrath of God. And the same thing is true even today. There are zero good people. There are zero. All of them. You, there's, either, there's only two categories of people. There are those who have had the wrath of God satisfied on their behalf because they are washed by the blood of Christ on the one hand, and there are those who are under the wrath of God on the other. Those are the only two potential categories. And this is what we see with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the sacrifice, the perfect burnt offering, such that God looks at the sacrifice of his son, and he says, I see it, and my wrath is now completely expended. I have no wrath anymore for anyone who is under the, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who is covered by this sacrifice uh, is, in fact, uh, propitiated. But God is propitiated uh, towards that person. And this is what we see even as we think of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden and he sees that cup. He asks, what is in the cup? What's in the cup is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is in the cup and he drinks that cup down to the dregs and drinks all of it such that now There is no longer any wrath for anyone who is a Christian. And this uh, is the reason, then, that it is an absolute necessity for all people to become Christians. If you don't, you will spend an eternity in hell where God will pour out his wrath upon you continually. There are only two categories. Uh, If you are here and you are not under the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, This is what's offered. It's a free offer. If anyone turns to God, if anyone turns to God in Christ, repents of their sins and believes, you will be covered by the blood of the Lamb and God's wrath will be satisfied. There will be no more wrath towards you. This is what we see in the burnt offering. Propitiation is made. And as the people of God came into the covenant then, they were reminded that the only way they could come into covenant with God is if God's wrath was appeased. Now, the second one is the peace offering. The second one is the peace offering. And the purpose of the peace offering is to show fellowship with God. That is to say, it's not just that God's wrath is satisfied, but then also uh, there is a fellowship that we have with God. And this is something that we have via covenant. This is a reason for the covenant itself. And it's why it's so fitting that this would be done uh, in the covenant ceremony. Uh, when we relate to God via covenant, we have fellowship with him. It's the greatest of all blessings that God has offered to his people. And in order to show the reality of this, Moses says in the covenant ceremony, there is first the burnt offering because the wrath must be a a peace first. And then secondly, there is a peace offering whereby the people of God uh, relate to him now via covenant. And notice that the thing that's that's, uh, emphasized in the peace offering, not only here, but in, in other legislation with regard to the peace offering is that there is a meal that you have in the presence of God. So whereas in the burnt offering, the entire animal is consumed and the entire animal becomes an aroma to God, in the peace offering, there is, in fact, a meal that you have with God. Notice in verse 7, You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there. Eat of the offering there is the idea. And rejoice before the Lord your God. So those who enter into covenant with God then, uh, by that sacrifice whereby the, the wrath of God is atoned, by that sacrifice you also enjoy great fellowship with God. And this is, of course, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. It's even the reason why, with regard to the Lord's Supper, the elements themselves point to the death of Christ. Uh, That is, by that sacrifice that we now enjoy covenant fellowship, the meal with God. This is what is seen uh, in the peace offering. And this is actually something that we see all throughout biblical covenants, even ones that are not made with God. There's always a meal that the two parties share together. Because the idea is that there, that the forging of this relationship, no matter what kind of relationship it is, that there is a kind of fellowship that you celebrate uh, in the context of the covenant ceremony. And here with, with God, then, it's appropriate that there would be a peace offering that's made, a peace offering whereby it becomes clear that the people of God have access to God and they have fellowship and communion with him. And this is what's offered in Christ. If you think about what is offered in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is offered is fellowship with the triune God, that you would have fellowship with the triune God. And this again shows the absolute necessity for all people to become Christians because God has made you for himself. He's made you for himself such that there is nothing that can satisfy the soul except for God You are made in God's image because you are made for fellowship with God. If you are living outside of fellowship with God, there will always be an emptiness. There will always be an emptiness. Because that emptiness is fulfilled when you commune with God, when you are in fellowship with him, when you are enjoying him forever. And so the sins atone for, if you think of the logic of of these sacrifices, and they're always logical in terms of the order of them. Uh, In terms of the logic of these sacrifices, the sins are atoned for. The the sins are atoned for such that the wrath is satisfied. But that's not the end in and of itself. The end is table fellowship with God. And therefore, the burnt offering is always followed uh, by the peace offering, that you might have communion and fellowship with the triune God. Now, this is the covenant ceremony. This is the covenant ceremony. These are the two things that are highlighted. The word of God and the sacrifice whereby the covenant is, is instituted, wh- whereby the people of God are formally set apart as such. And notice in verses 9 and 10, we see the result of the ceremony kind of spoken in advance, but to be formally, uh, be formally set into motion when the covenant ceremony is actually performed, that it's at this day, at this day, meaning once the ceremony is done, at this day, you have become the people of the Lord your God, And therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments, his statutes, which I command you today. This is something of uh, like the wedding ceremony. Uh, Once this ceremony is done, uh, then the people of God are formally constituted as the people of God. And notice again the order. There is an obligation. The people of God must say that they will obey the covenant. Uh, And yet the obedience to the covenant comes after the relationship is established. That's something we, we touched on uh, for, a lo- for a long time uh, last week, so I won't go over it again. But notice the idea is that the relationship is established by grace, and it's established without any need for obedience before the relationship is established. But the constituting of the relationship does bring upon obligations, just like in a marriage. Uh, the wedding happens, and it's only once the wedding ceremony happens that the formal obligations that are seen in the vows of the marriage are obligations on both parties within the covenant. So you enter into into the relationship wholly by grace and the obedience that is necessary is only necessary because you are in this new relationship uh, with God. Now in light of all this, brothers and sisters, the question to ask is this, are you truly part of God's people and a member of the covenant? Do you truly relate to God via covenant? And is that evident in your life by your commitment to the Word of God, and your resting for salvation on the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are two ways we can talk about covenant membership. In, in one, and one it's visible and, and invisible outward and inward. In some sense, everyone who's a member of a church, in a real sense, everyone who's a member of a church is a member of the covenant. You are a member of the covenant if you are a member of the church. And that carries with it great blessings and responsibilities. Great blessings and great responsibilities. And yet, this outward membership in the visible covenant, this visible membership, so to speak, will not save you. It will not save you. It is necessary, but it is not sufficient. The thing that is sufficient is repentance and faith. That you are resting for your salvation, not on yourself, you don't try to justify your own actions before God. You say, I am a worthless sinner. And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, I have no hope. I and, and I look with all of my hope, I look to the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he has made on my behalf. And I, as one who is a true member of the covenant, am committed to living in accordance with the word of God, to learning that word and obeying that word. That is what a true member of Of the covenant does. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, is this you? Is this you? Are you relating to God via covenant? Not just outwardly, but inwardly. Remember that everything in the covenant ceremony in the Old Testament is prophetic. Everything points to the way in which you are to relate to God. There is one sacrifice, there's one word that's been given. And may it be, may it be that you would be found on the last day to be a covenant keeper and that you may enjoy the blessings of the covenant, particularly that of eternal life in the presence of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your word, your wonderful word which you've given to us, which is perfect in every way, which is without error, without fault. It cannot fail in any way. It's authoritative. It's faithful. It's true. O oh Lord, it's sufficient for us, all of these things, because it is, in fact, your word, and you are all these things. You are glorious, and therefore it is, it is glorious. And Lord, we do pray that you would forgive us for not seeing your word as such, that even as people uh, overlooked the Lord Jesus Christ because outwardly he did not appear to be impressive, so too, Lord, so many uh, look over the beauty of your word seeing that it is written by men, and seeing no more. See, missing that your word is, in fact, your word, that the Bible was written by you, and that it is perfect in every way, uh, even though it does speak to us in ways that are not lofty in speech, not overly eloquent for eloquent's sake, and yet beautiful. All the parts of it coming together, teaching the same doctrine of salvation from beginning to end, being sufficient for your people to build them up, not just the wise and understanding, but Lord, even the little children, building them up in grace and faith, meeting us where we are and teaching us all that we need to know about you. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. How thankful we are as well for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the sacrifice whereby we have entered into covenant relationship with you. How thankful we are, O Lord. We confess ourselves to be sinners. We confess ourselves to have been under your wrath, except for that great sacrifice, which fully satisfied your wrath. How thankful we are, O God. And how thankful we are for the fellowship that we have with you that goes so far beyond the peace offering of the Old Testament that we, by the sacrifice of your Son and by the exaltation of your Son, have your Holy Spirit even living in our hearts now so great is our fellowship with you. Lord, help us to prize these things all the days of our lives, to grow in our knowledge of them, and to be faithful to the covenant relationship that we have with you. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart that through the preached word, your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.